to biota.org interviews. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this evening I have the pleasure of talking with Bruce Damer, the founder of Biota. Bruce, for people not familiar with your background, uh, can you give uh, some discussion to that and how you got involved in A-Life? Well, I grew up in central British Columbia as a kid, staring in wonderment at things like anthills. And I think probably... Most people involved in A-Life started off by studying nature, and I was fascinated by what were the processes. Later, I understood them to be sort of algorithms behind how an anthill was able to collect all the materials that it needed in a pretty optimal way, just through simple communication and through simple processes. So I ended up finding my way or wending my way to graduate school at University of Southern California, where... I wrote A-Life software on a VAX 750 uh, on a Tektronix uh, terminal, a Tektronix vector terminal, uh, in my off hours as a graduate student. And turns out that a number of A-Life people were coming together at that time. Dawn Farmer, I think, was at USC, and I, I wasn't connected with any of, any of that. The first A-Life conference, I think, was in 86, and I was still a graduate student. Uh, but certainly uh, I was very passionate about that. When I got my hands on a PC with a bitmap display, I made another cylinder automata of uh, A-Life ecosystem. So that, that's kind of the, the Bruce Damer, the early years. In terms of time frames, your work with avatars and virtual worlds and the initial formation of Biota, did your work with avatars and virtual worlds come before Biota? Well, interestingly enough, I had been living in Prague in, in Czechoslovakia, setting up software labs in the early 90s. And I decided to leave that project. It was, it, I had 16 employees, and it seemed to be that the Internet was bursting onto the scene back in the U.S., and I wanted to really get into it. And we were just doing software in terms of desktop publishing. And so I left, flew back to the U.S., bought a van, and kind of lived out of this van and had what you might call a tech-nomadic existence, a technical nomad. And I drove all over the place trying to figure out how to put a new life together. And the first place I drove from, I drove all the way from Austin, Texas, to uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, was to go and see the uh, Chris Langton and the Santa Fe Institute people, which, which I had subsequently heard about their work. And I I had decided that multi-user worlds was the the venue or the the, the focus of going to be my focus for the next ten years, but I really was passionate about emergent phenomena within these worlds. And while I was up at the Santa Fe Institute, uh, Chris was showing me swarm and all those sorts of things. And then suddenly, one of the graduate students said, "Come over and take a look at this." And on their Sun workstation, on the first copy of Mosaic. Uh, this was in 94, so it was probably Mosaic 1.2, was downloading and running uh, Carl Sims' MPEGs of his blocky, evolving creatures. And we all sort of stood there watching these creatures sw- sort of swim, and they're just MPEGs. It was the output of a thinking machine, the connection machine's software that generated these evolving forms, and that's become a very iconic uh, sort of symbol of this movement. And... Uh, I said to Chris, wow, this is incredible. Couldn't you combine the visual virtual... 
natural worlds uh, of, of uh, Carl Sims' creatures with the power of something like Swarm and the numbers, but then couldn't you put it into a multi-user setting where people can walk around and interact with creatures that are evolving and even become a selection of pressure on those creatures? And we drove around Santa Fe. His leg was in a full-leg cast. He'd fallen out of a treehouse. So I drove him all around Santa Fe for a day or so, and we talked about this. And he sort of finally kind of grokked it. That you put it all together. You have a multi-user world with people in it, with the human mind and the human hand in it, and then you have evolving uh, forms, and you might have a rich enough sort of digital ecosystems for, for things to happen if you put it all together. So that I... I drove from Santa Fe, left there. Chris basically said, you know, you may Santa Fe or Albuquerque may be a good place to locate, but there really isn't a critical mass of people doing stuff. And uh, I recommend you look for somewhere else. So I found the Bay Area, located here, established the Contact Consortium uh, with the express uh, vision of doing uh, an organization about multi-user worlds, which then held a series of conferences and experiments, the first experiments in virtual worlds. And lo and behold, uh, at just before the A-Life 6 conference, I think it was in 1998, uh, Chris got hooked on multi-user worlds, avatar worlds. Chris Langton himself and was often found in active worlds talking about, amongst other things, motorcycles, which is one of his passions, and finally understood, I think, the idea of a shared space. So Biota, in, in this period, Biota was formed, I'm sorry I'm going on at length here, but this kind of all strings together the whole story. Uh, Biota was formed as a special interest group of the Contact Consortium, and it was conceived on a mountaintop in southeastern British Columbia in the summer of, I guess around the summer of 96. I managed to get the dom domain name biota.org, which I was quite surprised. In those days, you could actually get, you know, kind of primary domain names. And I realized that the term biota was Latin uh, or Greek. My, my beloved here, my English major love will correct me, uh, for just meaning life. Uh, and I thought biota.org would be, would be a, a great name for a special interest group of the Contact Consortium, which is an umbrella nonprofit. And uh, we'll, I'll leave off talking about the conferences till later, but the idea of establishing Biota as a, a group within the consortium was simple. It was to uh, look at doing a life within shared virtual worlds. And so we tried all the experiments we could in the early years, one of them called Nerve Garden. Now, Nerve Garden was the first project for Biota.org, and it's also a seminal project in L-Systems with regards to the creation of L-System plants. For people not familiar with that technology, can you give some background to L-Systems and how they fit it into Nerve Garden? Yes. Um, L-Systems, there's a wonderful book called The Algorithmic Beauty of Plants. And anyone passionate about computer-generated lifelike forms uh, probably has a copy of this book. It shows... Uh, sort of a mathematical construct called the Lindenmeyer system, uh, which was conceived, I believe, in the maybe 70s and 80s, and it's basically strings that replace other strings, and these are called production rules, and you say, take the string A, B, and say that all the Bs are replaced by C, uh, and then the string becomes AC, and, and 
combinations of these rules generate longer and longer strings generally. And you then take the string and say, well, C is a branch, and A is a, is a, a leaf, and, and D is a flower. And if you get to you, you unravel the string after having run it a certain number of iterations, you generate these fractal or branching structures. And it turns out that strings, you can generate a string that, that looks like wild mustard. And so Lindenmeyer postulated that, well, gee, you know, branching structures in nature have to come from something like this. I mean, DNA is a string of symbols as well. So I, I don't think anyone's kind of put it together on how exactly uh, the L system, which is a very simplified form, can generate things that are so, so much like a given species of plant or even arthropods, you can generate a decent-looking arthropod from an L system. So uh, what we did was we said, Gee, you know, there's been a lot of work in computer graphics by Lindenmeyer and then by his student, Prussian Kevitz. And many people can't pronounce his name, so he's known famously as Dr. P. Uh, he's a regular at SIGGRAPH, and I met him, and he actually came to Digital Burgess uh, in 1997, our first conference, which we'll talk about later. But I sort of collected a bunch of people together and said, wouldn't it be cool if instead of having uh, these virtual L-system plants generated, you know, one at a time and just for for static images. What if we put them inside a world and allowed people to uh, choose an L-system seed and iterate it and grow different plants and have them placed in a common garden? And we started experiments with this with a very, very early VRML technology. It was actually VRML Level 2 and Java running behind it using the external authoring interface. And this was all extremely bleeding-edge stuff, and this is in January of 97. We submitted this as a proposal for SIGGRAPHs. Uh, ironically, that year it was called Electric Garden, uh, the emerging technology was called Electric Garden. So we said, well, let's submit this as an installation. We, we of course, were, we were accepted into the installation. And then that galvanized the, the then nascent biota group uh, working with a number of startups in South of Market and programmers, one of whom was Chris Laurel, who went on to create uh, several really well-known pieces of software to make work Nerve Garden work. We worked day and night, and we managed to get it all working. We got sponsorship. We trucked machines, including an SGIONIX 2, down to... Uh, to Los Angeles, we bought potted, you know, fake artificial plants uh, out in Pasadena, and we decorated our our stand. And we had people coming through for, a, you know, a week, the week of SIGGRAPH, uh, growing their plants in, in Java, and then coming over and placing them in a shared vermal world driven by this big onyx on a big screen. And that was the first sort of real great project of, of the Biota Group. And it was all sponsored and paid for, and it was a success. And a number of book chapters and probably, I don't know, six or seven papers have come out of just the Nerve Garden experience. And it seems to have decided a lot and is part of a lot of prior art. I have to, I have to give credit for uh, our inspiration was partly uh, the Telegarden project at USC, uh, which happened, I believe, in '95 at SIGGRAPH in L.A., and it was 
a robot arm that you could run through the web, through a webcam, and actually put a seed in a physical dirt garden, and then over time watch things grow. And the telegarden was, we thought, well, we're doing a virtual version of the telegarden, in fact. So we referenced the telegarden a lot. So we're sort of part of a chain of, of, of virtual garden projects. So end of, end of, and I've just come to the garden here, dig, digging up all the weeds. Um, uh, so it's kind of, I'm still in the gardening business. Now, the Digital Burgess and Biota Conferences brought together a number of people who were in their own particular fields, um, you know, beyond genius in some regards. And for people who had never uh, attended the Biota Conferences or the Digital Burgess Conferences, can you give some background on how you found all these amazing people and brought them together? Well, it's a, it's a very interesting story. By happenstance, two things things had happened around the time of when I put put the biota group together. Uh, one was I read Stephen Jay Gould's, um, I think his book was, it was published in 93 or 94, it was called Wonderful Life, and it was basically Stephen, you know, Stephen Jay Gould, for those who don't know her, uh, he passed away several years ago, but he was a very eminent uh, sort of paleobiologist, uh, one of the, the great minds and great writers in the field. Um, his specialty was soft shelly fauna of, of the very early oceans, um, but he he basically uh, was just a, a brilliant character. He sort of put himself in the model of uh, James Doolittle Walcott, the great scientist um, director of the Smithsonian uh, about a hundred years ago. But anyway, uh, Stephen Jay Gould's book was all about the Burgess Shale, and, and it turns out the other coincidence was that it was very close relatively to where I was raised in Kamloops, British Columbia. And the Burgess Shale was maybe four hours' drive um, east near Field in British Columbia, which is very, very deep mountain valleys in the Rockies. And we always, had, as kids or as adults, we'd always driven through Field and passed there. And we kind of knew about the, the Burgess Shale. I kind of read about it in the papers because it was all, there were always scientific crews up there, but didn't really focus on it. And then while I was up in British Columbia and the concept for Biota came to me, uh, I had been going to the Banff Center for the Arts in Banff, which is just over the border from where the Burgess Shale is, and it occurred to me that, hey, I could put all this together. I could create what you might call a strange attractor, which is let's have an event where people get to go to the Burgess Shale. I knew that I would be able to get a certain class of person interested in, in doing that because that's fairly, it's not just going to a conference room somewhere. This is different. You're hiking up in a very beautiful spot to a place where you can't really get to. You need special permission to go there. And I, I really put together an interesting program. And the, uh, Sarah Diamond at the Bath Center of the Arts was very supportive. And we decided to make uh, a program for late August be a three- to four-day event, and it's a wonderful facility there. You know, it's a full conference facility and really good accommodations and good food, and, and that became Digital Burgess, and I thought, sort of thought, well, we'll call it Digital Burgess, but it, it will be meant to be the primordial conference, the, the original conference of a biota conference series. It, that first conference, like the first A-Life conference, people always remember, because 
first ALIFE conference was way up in Los Alamos. And people remember being outdoors, and it was probably a, become a mythological event. And I wanted to create a mythological event at the beginning of Biota. And so it all came together extremely well. Um, I went on a preliminary hike with Parks Canada and with the paleontologists who work on the Burgess Shale um, in way back in, in June. It was still there was still snow on the site uh, just to see what the trek would be. And we, we had to have people sign medical waivers. And Roy Plotnick, who by his own admission is a paleontologist in Chicago, and he spends most of the time behind a computer, he ran on a treadmill for six months so that he could make it uh, on this hike, which was about... 2,500 vertical feet, which doesn't seem a whole lot, but you end up at around 8,000 feet altitude. And um, we had to <coughs> sign agreements that meant that if uh, a, a grizzly bear or mother and cubs was sighted in the area, they closed down the area and we'd have to cancel that portion of it. I had to get a bus to pick people up at 5 a.m. at the BAM Center. There was a lot of logistics. We had to actually agree that if somebody was injured on the mountain, that the helicopter had to take them out, and it would be paid for by the conference. Uh, it turns out when I went to see Stephen J. Gould at Harvard to talk to him about about the conference, see if he, if he would come, he was extremely supportive. He said, I, I can't come because I'm sick. I have lymphoma, lymphoma, basically, and I'm working on my greatest work, which he actually published before he died. I think it was the structure of evolutionary theory that thousand-page uh, book, but he told me about when he went to the Burgess Shale, and he said, I got up there, I managed to get up there, but I couldn't get down. You know, I, it was like going to Mecca for a paleontologist to get up to the Burgess Shale and see it and be, be shown around by the by the crew there, but I couldn't, my, my knees collapsed on the way down, and I was airlifted out. And the head of Parks Canada was in the helicopter with me and happened to be in the area in the day and was thrilled, was, was, was happy to meet me, I guess, and they didn't send us a bill. But um, I'm going on and on here, but the, the, the Digital Burgess Conference uh, could attract, I could attract people like Carl Sims and Tom Ray and Bruce Runniger, who's a very well-known paleontologist, one of the founders of the astrobiology field. Uh, William Riedel was my co-chair, and he's a well-known paleontologist from Australia who worked on the Glomar Challenger for many years. His specialty was diatoms and, and, and found in cherts and, and deep ocean drilling. But he brought in all the, the paleos. I invited both Richard Dawkins and Douglas Adams, and they were scheduled to come, and they had airfare and everything. Uh, but then there was a family crisis that affected both of them. And it turns out that their families were so close that I think it was one of their families was a, was a health crisis, and therefore both of them couldn't come. Uh, they did come to Biota 2 in Cambridge in England uh, the, the, the following year. They hosted, they co-hosted that conference. So, yes, uh, one day we're in late August of 97, we're, we're at the BAP Center, and all these wonderful people start showing up, and people that, for me, are legends. Um, Carl Sims just appears on a hiking trail to join our hike. Uh, our preliminary, you know, get your legs in shape hike, and there's Tom Ray in his his funny uh, Costa Rican hat, and uh, there they all are. And, uh, there's uh, you know, Larry Yeager, and, and uh, just just a tremendous uh, group of people. 
uh, showed up for that, that event. We, we did the hike uh, on the first day, and I thought that would be a bonding experience where people would, would you know, sort themselves out by how fit they were. So the computer science people and are huffing and puffing. There might be next to a huffing and puffing paleontologist or biologist. And, they, and it really helped bond the people together at the conference. Um, and people were very stiff and sore, so we took them to a hot spring the next night, uh, sitting in the hot spring pools there, Sulphur Mountain Hot Springs. So, it, you know, I'll let you ask me more questions about the dialogue at the conference, but it was, it was just a tremendous success, and the weather cooperated. And on the second day, someone came in with a newspaper, I held it up, and it was a Princess Diana had died in the car crash. So that, that gives you an idea of the, the timing. The Brits there were, oh, my goodness, you know, the, it was kind of a little bit of a, a shocker, uh, sort of the news coming in about that. But so anyway, that's the that, that's sort of Biota's second big project, which was Digital Birds. In terms of the people that were at that first high conference, how many of those people came to the second conference in Cambridge? We actually had a very good uh, return rate. We, uh, uh, the second conference, uh, the, the first conference I had, it turns out the, uh, the crew, uh, a, a bunch of people, Everlife, uh, and from the BBC, Chris Winter from the BBC, and Steve Grand, who we know of from the creator of Creatures, the Creatures game. And uh, therefore, what happened was the, the relationship was so strong with the British crew that had shown up that that created the basis for the second event. And Steve basically said, I want to host the second event. And so I went over to see him, and, and we knew that we were probably going to get Richard and Douglas on the second round. So I went over to see him in Cambridge. The Cyberlife was in Cambridge. And we went over to Maudlin College, which, of course, for people from Cambridge is actually written Magdalene, Magdalena co- College, but pronounced Maudlin the way that the Brits sometimes have strange ways of putting words out. Uh, so we went over to look at the college and kind of planned the second event. It was September of 97. So we had the whole British contingent plus uh, Douglas and Richard, Richard Dawkins, that is, and Douglas Adams coming as our our, our great two speakers, sort of uh, our headmasters in a way. We all felt like we were back in school. I stayed in the digs, the college digs there, which were pretty luxurious. Each student had a, a drawing room and a, and a fireplace in their own little uh, student dormitories, if you could even call them that. So we had Chris Langton came back, and I believe if we look at the, the list, uh, Larry Yeager was back. Um, the whole British crew, certainly myself, Stuart Gold came again, um, and we had a, a, a different mixture. We had a member of Parliament come. Uh, so the, the second conference, did, uh, I'm sure if Tom Ray, I think Tom Ray did come to the second one, uh, and then he came to the third one in San Jose. So we, we had this ongoing crew, and I think that what I was seeing was this gets to another point about the Biota Conference Series, that one of the reasons that I started the Biota Conference Series was I felt that there was, having gone to uh, an A-Life conference and seen, and, and talked to Chris Langton at length. Chris Langton was somewhat down on 
point that he felt that the vision had gone out of a movement and had become kind of physics envy, and that's sort of a scientist term for trying to have quote-unquote credibility or, or testability or be very, becoming very statistical uh, rather than visionary. And, of course, science is not a very visionary quest. Uh, this is why you have conferences like Contact where scientists can come and, and, and be visionary. At a regular scientific meeting, you really you don't want to be visionary because you, your peers won't think much of that. Uh, it's not the place for it. Um, so I felt that the biota series would sort of bring a visionary element, the visionaries of the A-Life movement uh, out. And by putting them in these, these beautiful settings and unique settings, you know, it would sort of take them out of the normal con- scientific conference venue, and that's, that's exactly what happened. In these audio interviews, we've already had a bit of an introduction to what the second and third biota conference was like from uh, Gerald de Jung's uh, account. But the idea of these people getting together and bouncing off collaborative ideas and the kind of concatenation both of a formal conference and the before and the after, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it, it turns out that I've sort of collected data points on this. The first conference, uh, the Digital Burgess or Biota One was fascinating because the it was a difficult connection. You had paleontologists who, and this, this was very well summed up, I think, by Bill Bill Riedel. Uh, if you'll notice on the on the Biota site, if you look at, there's actually a post, like a follow up for Digital Burgess, which where people write their views about what happened, uh, because you had it turns out very different communities. One community were more like detectives with loads of data trying to figure out what, how life got started or trace fossils and how that indicated the first mobile life forms. And, and they're, they're, they're basically trying to put together the pieces of a puzzle, whereas the computer science and artists are more like world builders. They're people who create artificial or, or synthetic environments, and they have complete, almost godlike powers over those environments. And and they create uh, realities uh, from scratch uh, based on models and visions and whatnot. And they're really different communities and very, very different approaches. Uh, but the one of the artists who came was Daryl Anderson, and he said that the result of Digital Burgess, uh, he, it totally changed his entire course of his art world. And he showed some material, some of his beautiful organically inspired art at contact about two years ago, and it was just breathtaking. So it kind of put him put him in a high octane. At the same time, Roy Plotnick, who is, is a, a sort of a, a paleontologist in Chicago, he kind of went into high gear in the use of digital tools for paleontology in early life and you know, sort of all of that, and he felt empowered by that. Um, Dick Gordon, uh, who's a uh, biologist in University of Manitoba, sort of one of the one of the seminal figures in in embryology, got very very motivated as well, and even went to the extent of of trying to get a digital Burgess two and three and four conference going because he felt there was so much new material to mine. So the results of of, of the first conference, you know, it, it takes years to find out how it's affected people, but it definitely has. Um, in the third conference. Was, was fascinating as Tom Ray came 
and the company. We had a we had a mixture of two different of different communities at the third conference. It was mainly the A Life community um, and the game community because we did it at San Jose State, and our hosts were two science fiction writers, Rudy Rucker and Bruce Sterling. So their whole their whole thing was really imaginary worlds um, inspired by biology. And a lot of their writings about that. Rudy Rucker, of course, is a professor at San Jose State and has written uh, software, a life type software. And Math Engine, this company that does physics, was there. So was Tom Ray, who had done Tierra, which was basically a string copying synthetic ecosystem, but didn't have any visual element. And all of them had seen uh, the famous Carl Sims swimming, evolving creatures. And they got together after that, and, and uh, Tom got some funding from a source to take Math Engine and make an evolving, kind of an evolving Tierra or a version of of uh, Carl Sims creatures that happen in real time instead of generated out of you know, out of a big supercomputer. And so that was called Virtual Life, and that came out as a CD. I can't remember. It was a Japanese company who funded it. So that that was a result of the mixing of the game community and the A-Life community. The game community has a huge motivation to create a certain class of life-like uh, non-player character or, or, or sort of biologically inspired scenes to make their games richer. And you can see that in uh, Will Wright's uh, uh, Spore system that is just coming out. Another point to make is that, that there's an effect on, on the people who didn't go the Biota conferences. I know you yourself, Tom, watched from afar and kind of absorbed uh, what was going on in those conferences. Well, also, Nathan Merville of Microsoft, who has on his desk, or when he was at Microsoft as chief scientist, he had an anomalous Keras on his desk. And, uh, he later had said that he had wanted to go to the Digital Burgess, which was fascinating. Stuart Kaufman had wanted to go to Digital Burgess. He's another seminal figure in the field. And um, uh, let's see, the, uh, Laurent and uh, there's, there's two, two artists, digital artists in Japan are very well known, had wanted to go. And Will Wright himself, the great designer of SimCity and The Sims and now Spore, he had heard about the conferences. And he was very inspired and had seen the website and, and had wanted to be a part of that. I had dinner with him about four years ago and we talked about that. So there was there seemed to have been a an effect on a, a wider group of people that even didn't attend the conferences. Uh, and that's very, that was always very, very uh, satisfying to see that that, that had happened. In terms of the, the end of the conferences, can you talk a bit about the, the last couple of conferences and then what happened for probably the next four or five years? Yeah, um, basically, well, Digital Burgess won, Digital Biota won with Digital Burgess in 1990. Seven. 98 was uh, DB2 in Cambridge, and there's still a very, you know, a, a site called cyberbiology.org where that's all documented. It's also linked off of biota.org. Then there's Digital Biota 3 in San Jose State, and that was in uh, the fall of 99. I think it was in October or November. And then we had one more shot, which was uh, Digital out of four, we had wanted to go, and if you'll notice, in, in Digital Biota 2, we're all standing by the River Cam, this 
speakers are standing by the river cam, all wearing T-shirts, except for Chris Langton for some reason, all wearing the T-shirts, uh, um, Shark Bay or Bust. And it was a T-shirt that we made out of a underwater shot of the stromatolites, the living stromatolites of Shark Bay, Australia, which is in extreme western Australia, fairly remote. And the plan was that a subsequent conference, we weren't sure which one, would take us on another adventure like we had had in, 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 in Canada, the Burgess Shale, we would take us out to a very, very important site in early life on Earth, which is the Hamlin Pools, Hamlin Pond at Shark Bay. Um, and I had actually started to set the wheels in motion, and Richard Dawkins said, I will definitely be there because uh, that's near Monkey Mia, which is a really well-known scuba, scuba diving area, and Richard is a very good scuba diver. And then things started to change. We, we had uh, DB3 was very successful uh, at San Jose State. And then uh, the dot-com uh, tumble began in the beginning of 2000. And we watched, I, I watched pretty much as uh, all of the sponsoring organizations which had, had put in dollars to the conferences such as SGI, Microsoft, Intel had all put money in. Dimitri Chrysopoulos had put money in from Intel. Um, and all of those organizations clearly were not going to be in the business of providing ten or fifteen thousand dollars each for a sponsorship. And it just seemed as though, from my own personal perspective, I digital space, the company, I really had to make the company a goer. And I had bought a farm and, and got together with Galen, and I had to. Personally, I had to make a go of the company, and I had to financially survive. So it was survival mode. And in talking, then a, a bombshell dropped on us with, with, with uh, Douglas's death um, of a heart attack in Santa Barbara. And that was sort of uh, a kind of a big psychological blow uh, to the Australia plan. Um, so all of that... Roy and I put our heads together and said, well, we want to do another event. And he had gotten uh, approval to do a half, a full-day event at the American Paleontological Association meeting at Berkeley in 2001. And we went ahead with that. And we had Digital Biota 4, which was more like a, a one-day seminar. And his, it was his goal to try to attract paleontologists to come and see some of this work. Some of the work was just tremendous. There was a Cambrian Sea simulation uh, at that time. And I've actually just started to go through the videotapes from that event because it was fully videoed, and we're going to be digitizing all of those this summer. Uh, and, and any other tapes that we have, even from uh, Digital Biota 3, will be digitized for the site. So we just basically ran out of steam. Uh, we ran out of the ability to get sponsorship. We, during the dot-com crash and the tech depression, or recession, we were unable to, I was unable to put much time in it. The last initiative that we had was in uh, 2001, uh, the uh, Alive Prize, which we called, uh, which Jake Bowman and myself had conceived of, which was a, a prize, a little bit like the X Prize, uh, where you would have an annual competition for people who had built lifelike synthetic ecosystems. And you'd have a group of people who would kind of score them and say, well, these this shows some interesting properties. And I managed to get Danny Hillis very interested in this. Uh, and I went to see Richard Dawkins at his home in the UK, and he was very surprised.
of this. Uh, but beyond that, uh, it was just very difficult to carry on. So we, we, we find ourselves now reinvigorated today, thanks a lot to you, Tom, and to, to some very bright young minds, a new, new field, a new uh, in, innovation in the field that's going on in kind of a recovered tech economy uh, with the, the Googles of the world and whatnot. In, in my own thinking with regards to this history, there's a seminal conversation with you and Gerald de Jung about, I guess, probably 18 months ago now with regards to his vision of Darwin at home. Can you pick up there in the discussion? Yeah, in fact, uh, what happened was I was trying to figure out how to do something like the Alive Prize, and then Darwin... Uh, Gerald, who's always been a big supporter of, of, of Biota, and he came to Biota 3 and has written about Biota, and I've, he's just been one of the leading lights of this whole movement. And he's put himself into writing code and getting things out there for the public, for, for communities to use. He sort of, I was sort of mentioning to him about proposing or promoting this idea of this networked, uh, evolving system that might use, say, Fluidium and some of his technologies, or it might join together several different efforts. And he sort of mentioned in an email something like, well, it would almost be like Darwin at home. And I thought, that, that's kind of a cool name. And uh, I said, can we use that in Biota to, to sort of promote this idea of, a, you know, we have the SETI at home project. There's a lot of at home projects, but could you do something like SETI at home but with an evolutionary uh, goal or bent to it. And he thought that was a great idea, and that was where I think he wanted to take his own technology. So I kind of used that term in a presentation at uh, USC, my old alma mater, uh, where I kind of announced it, and it was, it was picked up by the news by a new scientist. And uh, we then sort of created this, a site for it. But again, I, had, I personally had the problem of having, in, in, in actually the reverse problem that I had in 2001, I had too much work at Digital Space. Digital Space was you know, going very successfully at that point, or, and still is. Uh, NASA was having us do more and more work, and I really couldn't put effort into it. Uh, so uh, that is, I think, where I realized that it was unrealistic for me to try to lead an effort like this, and that Gerald had a very, very strong and, and unique vision for it, and uh, it was better for him to take it on uh, and, and take it on within his existing uh, many, many years of his Java-based evolving forms uh, project. And so that, I think, is where you came in, and, or you were involved at, at all points of this, and created the, the Biota at Home uh, initiative. Certainly. What I find fascinating is that what has really come out of Biota at Home is a series of separate projects that can kind of come together. And you've mentioned digital space, but can you talk about the digital space platform? Back in 1982, when I was getting into computers in college, I had this kind of clear vision in my head of evolving robots on virtual moonscapes. And uh, back in 1982, this was Actually, I sort of saw this when I saw the first bitmap displays at our school. One of the professors had an actual bitmap display, which we think of today as, well, what is a computer to 
uh, they, you couldn't show pictures and icons on them. When I was when I saw that, I sort of thought virtual worlds, and I was very passionate about space. And in the late 90s, uh, I found a digital space in 1995, and by the late 90s, we were starting to have a lot of interest from NASA. And NASA, as you know, is as the listeners know, is one of the great foundries of great research in the world. Um, it has the idea of telepresence, and the idea of 3D graphics per se has had a lot of investment from NASA. Silicon Graphics really got its start by selling to NASA. So for our little company, uh, when they saw uh, real-time 3D worlds, there were a lot of people at NASA who said, this is great, this is good applications for us, for astronaut training, for visualizing planetary lunar surfaces, for simulating vehicles on those surfaces, doing mission planning. And so they started funding us. Um, and for a while, we were funded both by NASA and by Adobe, working on the Adobe Atmosphere platform, in which we used to do NASA work. Uh, we used it to do virtual rovers and, and Mars habitats. And uh, then at in, in 2003, we decided to build our own platform out of open source components and call it Digital Spaces. And after almost 10 years of using other folks' technologies, it would be the first time that Digital Space actually built its own from scratch platform. Well, not necessarily from scratch if you think of using other people's open source components. But we proceeded over the next two years to build a very, very strong multi-user, 3D, real-time, web-delivered uh, platform that, you know, just in this last year has been used by NASA to simulate lunar rover missions, human lunar landers, you know, uh, astronaut training, uh, space station medical training, just a whole raft of projects. But my goal always, my sort of devious plan has always been since I found a digital space was to create a platform that, that not only supported avatars, but was, was really mainly targeted on supporting this idea of artificial life in virtual worlds. A platform that was so flexible, that would support a plug-in architecture, that was totally open source, there was no licensing costs or proprietary code, um, that had a very powerful physics engine, uh, an open source physics engine, and very, very good rendering performance, so that the A-Life or Biota community could actually use it as a common, if you could call it a digital soup, a primordial soup environment. Uh, because one of the things that I, 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 I think I've always seen is you, you, if you build your own, your own evolver, and you, you tend to uh, build a simple scene graph on top of it, because most, most of the investment is in the code for evolving the brain, for example, in, either in, uh, in, 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 cre in creatures or in noble ape that goes into the guts. So people spend so much time uh, putting the brain or the, the gene coder or the reproducer or whatever together that they tend to uh, adopt a, a simple ex expedient scene graph, graphical scene graph that may not say have sophisticated physics or something. So I felt that if we could create a really sophisticated scene graph that could accept the, the brains and the, the genes and the, the algorithms and the logic from many different AI 
real-life approaches and teams and individuals, we could create a common place in which creatures or L-system plants or environmental effects could happen so that your creature could be walking through somebody else's L-system forest and meeting another creature that might be eating an L-system plant. And you could create that magical effect of, of this multiplier effect of a common ecosystem rather than separate islands of innovation and islands of, of uh, emergent phenomena would be done together. And so that, that, that was the idea behind all the decade now of, 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 of expenses and effort and dreams and hopes and now investment in creating the digital spaces platform so that it would be a platform up to the task of, say, having noble ape creatures there with, with cloud latodes, uh, uh, virtual forests with L systems, that it could, it could really do both and it could, it could create a, 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 common, a common primordial soup. On a personal note, I think what's particularly cool about this vision is that we all have areas of interest that really excite us. And by creating this kind of communicative uh, membrane, digital membrane, uh, it enables people such as myself and yourself and people like Gerald and, as you were saying, people like Claude and really anyone developing their own components of artificial life to kind of come together in this, in this shared vision. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and of course... The what you have to overcome, now, it's almost like the early internet or, say, the fax machine. If there's only one fax machine, there may be ten brands of fax machine all doing their own faxes in their own way. But if there's one standard in faxes, it pays to, to work with the standard because you get the network effect. Or if there's one internet, one TCP IP, everyone, all boats rise by the fact that that you plug into it and you get all the benefits of the whole network. And so the goal is to create those first early projects where two or three individuals say, all right, we're going to download this code base, we're going to build our stuff into a plugin, and see if it can all play in one, in one environment and establish trust, their trust, that this environment can represent the, you know, the caliber of their work. And that suddenly, oh, you're... you're creatures are interacting with my creatures. Isn't that interesting? And if we can do that, just with, say, two or three individuals, we may be able to attract university projects and other passionate um, sort of solo inventor A-Life developers to, to come in and, and do versions of what they've already done in this common platform and, and get this kind of Cambrian explosion going. Now, to take a different direction before I ask you about what your own vision of the future of A-Life is, I know you knew Terence McKenna, and he had a particular view of what the, the future of technology would look like. What do you think Terence would, would say in reflection with regards to contemporary A-Life and the direction that it appears to be going? Well, I think there's a whole group of, you know, Ray Kurzweil being sort of a, a primordial example of, you know, the, the idea of the singularity that technology, things that come out of our own technology will somehow uh, outrun us, you know, evolve past us. In, in, in a sense, well, I met Stuart Brand about four years ago, and he was starting a project called the Long Now Project, which is still online, and it's predictions. So these are the, he works with Danny Hillis on this uh, 
foundation that had done this clock that's supposed to run in 10,000 years. So these are, as opposed to the short-term thinking of most most modern businesses and whatnot, these are people who think in terms of tens of thousands of years. So so Stuart was establishing this site to say, you, you can make a prediction for even 100 years from now, we'll maintain the prediction and people can put money up and bet on whether or not it'll succeed or not by a certain date. And if they're alive, you know, the bet, the money will go to the foundation or something. I can't quite remember, but I put in a, you know, Ray Kurzweil would say that within 20 years, you know, you'll be downloading your consciousness and there will be this technological singularity. And, uh, of course, uh, Davis uh, uh, writes, that the uh, author of uh, Technosis uh, writes about this. And it's almost a religious movement that, that sort of believes this. I'm of the I'm of the belief that we're so poor we're so poor in our understanding of of living systems and especially of evolution and our computing environments. You know, I've got a barn full of vintage computers going back 30, 35 years, and I can trace the evolution of silicon technology and software, and I can say that we're we're a species that develops this stuff in, in fits and starts, and we're not that good at software per se. We're, as, as, as a, a primate brain is not that very, not that good at a multitasking, multi-threaded code, for example. And when we when we see an ant hill, we can't follow the activity of all the individual ants and, and have a global understanding. We have to follow one ant along and, and classify that behavior. So, as a species, we're not really very good at at, at creating powerful, functional, multi-threaded. Uh, things uh, we just do it by fits and fits and starts and by hacking. And um, here comes the creature now. But, uh, so I think that th- this great belief that somehow we're going to create a, a technology that somehow stands up like Terminator Two and is is all powerful. I think that's very unrealistic. I think it's more like what you see in 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 genetic engineering today, we just hack away and we make a slight improvement or we make a, a green pig or a, we mash a clone something, or, but we, we break far more embryos and we, we fail in, in, in far more cases than we succeed, and it's just a very, very slow process. And I think the, the Alive Prize or Darwin at Home or Biot at Home, we're all recognizing that it's more like a long now prediction you've got to do this year in, year out and focus people and focus a field on on this topic of creating lifelike emergence in, in digital media uh, over the, not over the years but over the decades and, and you have to watch it and it's a very, very fragile uh, medium and we're not going to really know if we're succeeding for probably decades and so it's very much like the space program There's been this, there was this burst of innovation and, and very little progress uh, uh, in, in real terms since the 60s. We did all the basic missions and forms by 1969, but now we're in this slow process of grappling with the, the real difficulties of the medium. Do you think it's a there's a commercial component to it in terms of your discussion about how the dot-com uh, bubble bursting affected the biota conferences, or do you think it's it can be something that can be grow purely through collaboration alone? I think that um, the, there's a great strange 
contractor called the game industry that uh, is always close to uh, the buyout of vision. For example, a good example is Todd Fermansky, uh, who's a uh, graduate student. He's graduated from USC, and he worked in the Zemeckis Game Lab at the School of Cinema, TV, and the Interactive Division. And uh, he was funded by, and their lab was funded by Electronic Arts, uh, because exactly they want they want sophisticated, interesting behavior in their multiplayer games. And that's exactly what I saw back in 94 with Chris Langton. I said, that is going to be a huge draw. And you're going to have uh, game cards that are going to be a thousand times more powerful than the processor in the PC, which is true in terms of raw pipeline processing. Those game cards are the are the power source for everything. They're, they're where they've attracted hundreds of billions in investment because there's billions to be made on those chipsets. And so that industry, I think that you can do this in a bubble. You can, you can, you can do a life uh, software and experiments in academia, but anything that comes out of academia, for the most part, never has a widespread appeal. It's generally, to support a paper or a thesis. But if you're doing work that can somehow be used in the, in the game world, you can have some real octane behind you, high octane fuel. The danger is, of course, the game world operates on proprietary engines, and your Spore project or your your one-off uh, evolving non-player character project may go for one generation of one game and then be gone, or it may get tied up in patents, for example. So there's a, there's a real danger that innovation on that side gets wrapped up, and hence trying to uh, create a game engine-like, powerful, open-source environment, digital spaces, that's uh, an in-between. It's much better than uh, what you would see as an academic project in terms of an engine, but it's not Unreal Tournament 3 with a $500,000 license. Uh, and it's not as good as Unreal Tournament 3. So it, it trying, what we're trying to do is, is, is walk that fine line. Now, is there commercial... There, there potentially is, is, is a commercial use for it. I, I can't really see it clearly until the projects really get started. I think it really has to start with personal passion, and, and, and that's the investment that you need, and that there's enough uh, in the platform, there's enough out there in terms of, of a gift economy around these projects that it, it will, the project can go ahead without significant investment, although certainly everybody would love to have grants to do it. Now, in terms of your dream for the future, what more would you like to see with the A-Life community? Well, certainly uh, I would love to see uh, having the Biota Conference Series return for a second generation. Um, I think that the, the podcasts that you're, that you're doing are, are, in a sense, a 21st century way of bringing that back because we know that those people who are out there listening to these podcasts number of them, it's almost like going to a conference. Uh, it would be great if on, on the Biota site that we had more examples of, of environments people could try. I know that we're, we're continuing, continually trying to collect in, in examples of projects out there so that people could try them. We probably need to have a blog uh, or some kind of a wiki going for discussion. 
and certainly a physical physical conference would be would be wonderful just for the energy that it creates and probably in Silicon Valley or maybe in Las Vegas. That um, does bring in the vision back of what we're trying to do because we have we're now ten years since uh, since Digital Burgess or nine years since Digital Burgess and boy there's a lot of power in computing platforms and there's a lot of exciting projects and we could look at Spore and Will Wright would come and um, we could get a, a whole new vision. I know that I've talked recently with Jaron Lanier and he, he's really passionate about this stuff. He said that if I didn't, if he didn't go into uh, VR in the 80s, he would have gone into into a life. Uh, he just he, one night he made the decision of what he was going to do with his life. So he would certainly come. So we could get a pretty tremendous conference going. But I think over over all of that, uh, I would be happy if happiest. If on the Biota site, under Biota at Home, there was literally a digital evolving soup that you could go into right from the site and, and look at what the current status is of the creatures and see who had been there and meet people in there in the multi-user setting and poke, poke, poke the bellies of the creatures and, and, you know, distribute genetic code to grow new food sources are due. You know, it would just be wonderful if, if on the biota site that we had a biota environment like the nerve garden, but that wasn't static uh, and wasn't simplistic, that it was very sophisticated and it had a life of its own. Any final thoughts for the interview, Bruce? Well, I think um, that anyone out there who is listening to this has gotten this far, because I know this is a pretty long podcast, one of the longest ones probably in the series. If you've gotten this far and if you're really passionate uh, about this vision or you have an opinion, uh, just click on the links at the Biota site for contacting us and just tell us about yourself. Or Tom and I will both see it, and we just need the energy, new blood and energy as, as Biota enters its second generation um, just to go forward and make some of these things real. There's a very good chance you may be interviewed on this very podcast if you get in contact with us as well. So there's a very real danger that that may happen. <laughs> be forewarned. Thank you very much, Bruce, for the opportunity to talk with you. A great pleasure, and, and Tom, thank you for, uh, for doing this whole series.